from desire to benediction. But I'd like to look at the human condition that we find ourselves in, which makes meditation a real gift when you find it. Human condition that can be changed by your accepting this gift at the right moment. We start with basic human needs. We have physical needs. These physical needs are not met, even as children, food, drink, shelter. We will suffer physical consequences because those basic physical needs were not met. Basic nutrition, basic physical care, if it isn't provided in the right way, in the right quantity, will lead to permanent changes in our physical appearance, the way we operate physically, our immune system and everything else. Patterns for that are set very early in life. Then we have other needs, social needs, educational needs. We need to have our gifts and talents identified, recognized, and developed. And again, if we don't, we suffer intellectually, we suffer socially, culturally. Sometimes we can make up lost ground, but most people don't. Well, then there are also emotional needs, of course. We need to be loved, and we have a very high demand for love. We demand to be loved exclusively as young children. We find it very difficult to share love with sibling rivalry. It's almost inevitable, even if we come from a very loving family with healthy parents and a healthy environment, it's really impossible that we're not going to experience some deprivation. That at some point, we're not going to be loved when we need it or as much as we need it. Even in the best of families, in the most functional of families. Now, whenever a basic human need, whether it's physical or psychological or cultural or social or um, emotional, whenever a basic human need is not met, we experience a wound. It's a hurt. It's a hurt by negation. It's a hurt by deprivation. You know, that's not to even speak about maybe actual intentional harm that is done to us, which is even more horrific and damaging. But even if it's unintentional, just in the normal circumstances of life, when human needs are not met, we experience a wound. And those wounds remain with us for life. If you didn't get enough love as a child, then 50 years later, you're not going to be able to rewind the tape and go back and fill in what you didn't get 20 or 30 years ago. So wounds stay with us for life. In Christian imagery, that's very graphically represented in the resurrection appearances of Jesus. After Jesus rises from the dead and he shows himself to his disciples, he still has his wounds. Now, the wounds have been healed, but the wounds are still visible. And they're part of our eternal character. What happens when we are wounded? We feel pain. That's what a wound is. It's physical pain. Our immediate instinct is to rub it and take the pain away or to take a pill to take the pain away. Even if there are side effects, we still take pills to take the pain away. But what about emotional wounds? Emotional wounds are more difficult to heal. They hurt, sometimes especially when these wounds are deeply embedded in our early history. We don't even know where the pain comes from. We didn't know as a child. We weren't conscious as a child of the fact that I wasn't being loved enough or I wasn't being given this or I wasn't being given enough attention. We just didn't have that conscious language or awareness to be able to identify that. 
and a great deal of dealing with emotional wounds is being able to name it, to understand it, to know where it's coming from. That's the first step in the healing very often. But as a child we don't have it, and so the ache, this hunger, thirst for something more, is often buried deep within us. It has a good side to it too, which is our human capacity for growth and for transcendence, but it can also be involved deeply with our psychological woundedness. So what do we do when we feel pain? We want something to take it away. At the emotional or psychological level, what we do is to imagine, form an image of what will take the pain away that would make me feel better. We're going to identify our hopes, our longing to be free from pain, to be whole, to be happy, to be peaceful. We're going to identify those hopes with that image. Next step is to say, if I can get what I am imagining in reality, then I will feel better. This pain will be taken away. Now, the problem is that the image at some point then becomes a desire. And it has now begun to take on a life of its own at the imaginative level. So, so the image has now, through a high level of concentration, by paying a lot of attention to that image, and putting a lot of hope in that image, it begins to form the desire and to enter into the life of our desires. So then we start going after the desire. If the desire is to make a lot of money, that's it, that's my goal. Or to achieve fame, power, or success in whatever area of life I'm working. Or it may be a sexual desire. It could even be a desire for spiritual enlightenment. The problem is that even if we find the desire, we do fulfill our ambitions, we get what we want. It doesn't take the pain away. It does temporarily because the satisfaction of any desire takes the pain away temporarily. But then the nature of the life of desire is that it is cyclical comes back after you satisfy it it comes back again then we discover that fulfilling our desire getting the job we wanted getting the success we wanted getting the sexual satisfaction we wanted but that does not actually address this deeper ache this deeper hunger this deeper need that is felt as a pain and then I think we begin to get quite complex we begin to branch out into desires breeding desires when we will experience the greater and greater alienation from the original need or wound, the unmet need. Now, in that pattern of desire, which is pretty much the human condition, it's what the Buddha focused on as the cause of all suffering, if you are unlucky, then one of those desires is going to easily become an addiction. Either it's physiological or psychological, it's almost inevitable that one of those many complex desires that we form is going to hook us into a compulsive cycle in which we lose our freedom and it takes us over. How does meditation come into this? At the right time in one's journey, in one's life, if you have the grace of hearing about it, meditation becomes a way of dealing with this condition. In the 12-step program, in the 11th step, by raising our conscious contact with God through prayer and meditation, 
it isn't then that meditation is some magic pill that cures addiction. But it is a necessary step in recovery. And what is recovery? Healing. It's recovering the wholeness that we have tragically but necessarily lost. Necessarily lost because that is the human condition. We are going to lose it anyway. And in recovering, in healing, in regaining the wholeness, we are actually better off than we were before. The recovery doesn't mean going back. Healing doesn't mean going back to a time before you were wounded. It means dealing with the wounds that you've got, with the story that you have, that you are, and evolving that, taking that to the next stage of its meaning, finishing the story, continuing to tell the story, to live the story, until you discover what, what is the end of the story. We don't know yet. How does meditation do this, then? It does it in a very simple, radical way. We do it by cutting through, but in a non-violent way, the images. Because if we let go of the images, it breaks the cycle of desire. And if we break through the cycle of desire, we break that pattern, but we can break it at least temporarily. And if we continue to break it often enough, it will eventually dissolve, it will be broken. We will be free, restart, eventually, if we do the work, if we stay with it, if we persevere.